This Kendra is where they make their mark. This is the time where you've got to turn the table. You've got to take advantage and ride this wave in this momentum. Look out! Welcome to our Match Preview Podcast. Callum Williams alongside Kendra D. St. Aubin, as always. Big day, big week ahead for Minnesota United. The home opener at Allianz Field with fans in the building. They host Real Salt Lake. We'll talk all about the opponents a little later on. But first, Kendra D. St. Aubin, let's talk about the positives. Fabulous to have fans back in the stadium. It's going to be about 4,000 to our understanding. But no doubt about it, they'll make plenty of noise. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I was at um, an open training session yesterday at Allianz Field or whatever day that was, Tuesday, I guess it was, and it just, you could just sense the energy. It was palpable in there, and there weren't any fans in there, clearly, but some media members were allowed to watch training. You know, we did the live stream with, and, and interviewed Chris Wright and Manny Lagos. I just think there was a palpable energy of seeing the green pitch, the beautiful field, and the stadium, you know, in sunshine, knowing that the team was going to be there on Saturday, and on Saturday with 4,000 or so fans, as you stated. So the club has worked really hard to make this possible to follow all the guidelines and the rules and the regulations and the safety protocols. And it's just going to be a different sort of energy, um, regardless of how, you know, players and coaches tried to make the best of the situation in 2020. They're all looking very forward to having fans in the stands. And I know you and I are too. I mean, normally the part of the ownership group sits right in front of our television booth and our windows are open. So, you know, somewhat cognizant of sometimes when we're uber critical of something that's going on. But I would take that any day over having it empty. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. And you know what? If we are critical, so be it. It is what it is. <laughs> um, so, look, before we talk about the game and, and, and the opening of Allianz, the reopening of Allianz Fields, uh, to fans. Um, let me ask you about the Sounders game. Um, I can do it. I had a, a last-minute personal issue, unfortunately, but I uh, was able to watch the game, uh, was able to listen to you guys uh, for the majority of it as well. Uh, tell me, first of all, what the main differences were from the first half to the second half. Well, I think a huge piece of it was is that First of all, Seattle capitalized on their opportunities. They got opportunities in the second half and they finished them and take nothing away from Joao Paulo's wonder strike. Let's just call it what it was. You know, the in-step kind of up in the air, you know, flicks it to himself and then half volleys it. And Dane St. Clair just doesn't even have a chance. No chance. The other goals, I think, were defensive breakdowns, the lack and shifting the movement side to side, maybe a, one mistake here and then the recovery and the movement to cover for each other just wasn't there. Um, on the back line or in the midfield for that matter. But ultimately what they did is they finished and they buried their chances. And Minnesota United, you know, they didn't. They did not bury their opportunities. The pressure they were putting on in the first half, it was so fun to watch. It was exciting to see. They were all on the same page. It was clear that Adrian Heath had this game plan for this club, that they were following to a T when they stepped on that pitch, that they knew that this was the thing they wanted to do, make Seattle uncomfortable, and that is what they did. How many turnovers do we see in the defensive third of the field for Seattle? They had no answers for an outlet pass to connect through midfield and get the ball out of pressure. You could see the frustration. You could see the hands being thrown up. You could see the, you know yelling at each other, trying to communicate to each other about who needs to be where for an outlet pass to relieve some of that pressure. And they had no answers. But when Minnesota got the turnovers, put the pressure on, forced them into a throw-in and deep in their end, they didn't capitalize on that chance. It was a post here. It was a missed opportunity there. It just – it was unfortunate because that is what Minnesota had to do. If they were going to put that kind of pressure on, you've got to get something from it. 
And then if not, you have to maybe kind of resort to saying, okay, we need to drop back in a little bit more of an on the road defensive shape. Not, I'm not saying pack it in, but maybe the line of confrontation isn't up to the goalkeeper. I mean, they were pretty much pressing, pressing Stefan Fry every touch time he touched the ball. So um, they didn't capitalize on their chances. Seattle did. And, and ultimately they, that's how they came away from the win. We talked about this, what 50, 60 minutes. Minnesota was the better team for that game. The stats were nearly even at halftime. Um, and I don't think the four zero line uh, score line is indicative of what the game was really like. Um, you know, we could debate formation. We could talk about where was everybody playing? Who was maybe I told you before, I thought Hassani was deemed a little bit ineffective playing out, out wider rather than tucking in more central. I think he's more dangerous there to combine in the attack, but you know, that's, I just think ultimately it comes down to finishing your opportunities. Why, why did Hassani Dotson start on the left-hand side? Because that's something we've not seen before. That's a great question, Cal. <laughs> no, and I think you and I, uh, after we talked after the fact, it's, I don't know why he started out there. I mean, I, I always assumed that if it was going to be Jan and Hassani and Will centrally for Minnesota United in a 4-2-3-1-ish, or, you know, we talked about it being a 4-3-3, depending on how they wanted to go into Seattle, that it would be Hassani pushing up higher, Jan staying a little bit more home, and Will Trapp sitting even behind them is the number six. That was how I envisioned it. We could see Hassani's ability to combine, and he is the type of player that needs to be able to play combined, give and go with Emmanuel Reynoso, you know, with Robin Lord, Ethan Finley, when they tuck in, whatever it might be. And again, some of them might go back to not having a true number nine on the pitch, but, um, you know, Robin does what he can when he's in that position. But I think that Hassani and, and Hassani can score goals. I mean, he can shoot from range, from distance. He can place it. He knows what he's – we saw it in the U23s and the Olympic qualifiers. So I just think um, he's not a 1v1 beat him with pace down the line, get to the end line winger. And that's kind of how I felt. He got stuck out there a little bit and didn't tuck in as much as he needed to or maybe that's what they told him to do. But I like him more centrally. Um, sitting in front of Jan and Will to combine with Emmanuel Reynoso and get that attack going. And, and then if he, if Reynoso is attracting the attention, that opens up space for Hassani, and then he can have a wonder strike of his own from 20, 25 yards out. Yeah, I, I think a, a few things here. So obviously Hassani Dalton had a very good Olympic qualification uh, period with, with the U23s, and, and I think they, they were just trying to get him into the team the way that they, they could. Um, that perhaps opened up space on the left-hand side because, let's be honest, there were several injuries. Uh, Baki Dibassi obviously w was injured and, and that meant Brent Coleman came in. We'll get to that shortly. I think it's safe to say if Nico Hansen was available and wasn't injured, he may very well have started on that left-hand side. Maybe if Juan Agudelo was good to go from the start, maybe Robin Lube would have started on the left-hand side. Maybe Agudelo would have started out there as well. Um, but ultimately, I, I think they've been so impressed with the Sani Dotson. Um, they wanted to get him on the field somehow. And, and I spoke to the assistant manager, Ian Fuller, the morning of the game, and, and they said they, they wanted to go with the trusted 4-2-3-1, um, which, let's be honest, has given Minnesota their, their success throughout their time in Major League Soccer. Um, I, I would just be surprised if we see Hassani Dalton out there again, um, because we all know how good he is, and I don't think he was anywhere near as effective as he can be when he was well, playing. 
And even in the four, two, three, one, Cal, and I agree with you, you go with something that's familiar to you, but if, and I don't know what the situation was, what they had been training in all week or where positionally players had been all week leading up to the match, or if that was the plan, but also then, you know, we even saw Manuel Reynoso start on the, the left-hand side in that four, two, three, one, regardless, you know, depending on who was sitting underneath. So I think that if you had put Robin up high and you put, Hassani just below and, and Reynoso on the left, but you know, he's going to tuck in. I think when you have a player like Robin and Reynoso and Hassani, they understand the movement and the willingness to make the movement, to be available for each other and create their own sort of triangle, their own sort of runs playing off the shoulder, you know, that little ticky tap one touch kind of stuff that we used to see a lot last season with Reynoso and Kevin Molino that they're not, you know, I, I, I just felt like Hassani got a little bit more stuck out there then when we see Reynoso start out there and drift in in the 4-2-3-1, if that makes any sense. And I think then the midfield of Will Trapp and Jan would have been a little bit, um, you know, more solidified. And I don't know. I just, I just felt like he wasn't utilized as best as he could have been because of what we've seen him do and, and what we've also seen him do in Olympic qualifiers pushing forward. I think we were both quite surprised, weren't we? And, and I think it may even have been on this podcast we, we said – we would expect a 4-3-3 and the two wide players on either side of the forward would, would be pinched in a lot more and the width would perhaps come from the fullbacks that we've we've seen in the past over the last couple of years. But anyway, look, it, it, it was what it was and Minnesota, um, I'm sure, I would be surprised, we'll get into it later, if they weren't back to a 4-2-3-1 uh, against Real Salt Lake. Um, you mentioned it earlier on, Kay, in terms of um, the Sounders in the first half in particular frustrated because... They couldn't pass the ball out of the back. I, I think Reynoso did a fabulous job in cutting off a lot of angles um, and, and, quite frankly, did his job very, very well uh, on the defensive side of the ball on Friday evening against the Sounders. Um, but once the Sounders changed things a little bit and, and Schmetzer tweaked it a little, what I thought then was a real issue for Minnesota was when the Sounders played a high line, um, Emmanuel Reynoso received the ball a lot deeper. Um, which meant he gave the ball away a lot deeper. Now, I'm all for Emmanuel Reynoso um, misplacing a pass when he's higher up the field because he's that kind of player. He's trying things all the time. He's going to give the ball away a lot, and that's fine. It's fine when you're higher up the field, but when you lose the ball essentially midway through Minnesota's own half like he did several times, it instantly puts the back line and those behind him under pressure. And, and I think if you go back and look at the second and third goal, there were examples of that. And... I think a lot of that comes from the lack of a high press in the second half. Um, but what it did ultimately is it put Brent Kalman under a, a tremendous amount of pressure. Kalman then, in my opinion, makes, makes a mistake for the second goal when he tries to step in front of Will Bruin, who was able to turn and ultimately um, provide for, for the goal. Um, how, how, much, how much blame do we put on somebody like Brent Kalman in this situation for the second and third goals? Well, I think the second and third goals, it's its tough for me because I agree with you. I think that Reynoso is trying to find the game, so he's coming back a little bit deeper. He's receiving the ball in a deeper position. And let's be fair, even if he had received the ball and turned and, and gone forward cleanly, he's also how much farther away from the goal where he's trying to make something happen. Just his playmaking ability goes down quite a bit. To me, the person that should be receiving the, the ball in those positions is a Jan Gregus or a Will Trap, And we've seen Will Trap can ping a ball. He can pick a pass. Adrian Heath has been very high on him. 
um, throughout the preseason saying he's an even better passer and connector of the game than he knew. And, and we know that Will Trapp has been able to do that, especially when he was with Columbus crew. So Reynoso, I think dropping it deeper, he's trying to find the game. He's trying to make something happen. He's that kind of number 10. He's that kind of a player that puts the pressure upon himself to make it happen, regardless of where it is on the field. And you're right. The turnovers then lead to, you know, Seattle going the other direction. They have the momentum. Will Bruin is a very tall task for an entire 90 minutes from a physical standpoint. We saw Michael Boxel and Brent Coleman having to deal with him. I just thought there was a, I, I'm not saying that the, the blame by any means goes entirely on Brent Coleman. I think one, he tried to step and he kind of slipped or got caught and, you know, and, and fell down, but right away, Seattle's going the other way and they have the ability to break out like that. They have the ability to make the right runs in the right spots, even though they had a lot of new pieces and were me- missing Nico Ladero. Well, you know, Ra- Raul Rui Diaz, Will Bruin and, um, Christian Roldan played plenty of minutes together getting forward on the attack and know to, where to make those supporting runs to be in the right spot at the right time. I thought the shifting side to side and covering for each other was lacking in the second half from a defensive perspective. There was a couple times where Chase kind of tucked in to cover for Brent Coleman because Brent had stepped on the back of Will Bruin and then Brent would drop back in, but Chase wasn't quick enough to get back out to the left-hand side defensively to cover. And then right away then there goes that combination play, triangle passing one, two touches down the right-hand side of the attack for Seattle And before you know it, there's a person wide open on the back post. And, you know, so then Michael Boxel sliding over and then he's out of position. It was a domino effect. And who made the initial mistake, whether that's a turnover at midfield or whether that's something that has straight up happened on the back line in in a matter of miscommunication and lack of positioning. I'm not 100% certain on, you know, how they divvied up those responsibilities in training all week and watching film on Seattle. But um, I think if you asked any of those defenders, Brent Coleman, I think, first of all, would raise his hand and say, I made a mistake. I made some mistakes. He's this, that kind of player. And then you'd have Michael Boxel next to him saying, this was a team team loss. Like, you know, we were out of shape defensively. We didn't cover for each other well enough. We didn't slide over positionally. So a lot of things I think that just need to be fixed. And, and you hope they're kind of one-off errors because – we talked a lot last season about the changing of the center back pairing. It was a constant new changing of center back pairing once Ike Parra was out of the picture. And Minnesota United and Michael Boxel and whoever was alongside him just seemed to pick right up where they left off. Well, Seattle in the second half was not the case. They were exposed in transition, some mistakes, and um, some easy tapping goals for Seattle. And um, I think that's a pride factor going forward. I mean, you know that those guys were embarrassed by that scoreline and that final result, and there there was a lot of pride in not allowing goals like that. And I think that they they probably took that to heart, all that back line. It's frustrating, wasn't it? Because it was essentially three cheap giveaways that led to those three Sanders goals. The first one you can't do anything about. The first one is that it's a sensational goal and it will be in the running for MLS goal of the year because it is stupendous. But Hey, we're real quick though on that first one. I agree with you 100%. The, the strike itself was ridiculous. But the fact that Joao Paulo has time and space to bring it down. I know he takes it out of mid, uh, you know, mid flight and in, in, in air, but I mean, he steps up, takes a touch. It was a clearance. I think it was an initial header by maybe Chase Gasper that didn't quite clear the zone. didn't quite clear the 18 just in that area. So, you know, when you go back two, three, four plays, passes, missed clearances prior to, then you're kind of wondering, 
you know, where was that center midfield at, at that time? Where were Will Trapp and, and Jan Gregush at that time in that moment um, leading up to that? Not the goal necessarily itself, because that was a ridiculous strike. But even those kinds of things of just being first to the ball. Um, and you have to wonder too, Cal, I mean, how exhausted were those guys after the, the pressing that they did for the first 45, 50 minutes of that game? You, there's just no way you can keep that up for 90 minutes. No. It'll be interesting to see how they operate against Real Salt Lake. But look, I mean, in, in terms of the actual statistical approach of the game as well, Kendra, I, I went back and, look in, and looked at the, the stats afterwards, and th- there isn't much difference at all. It's the same amount of shots. I think it's 51-49% in favour of Seattle just about. Uh, passing accuracy was very, very similar. The only difference really was that the Seattle Sounders took their chances. And as we mentioned already, the first one was fabulous. The, the second two, I think there were... Um, there were frustrations from a Minnesota standpoint because the ball was given away cheaply. And the same can be said about the fourth one as well, where Metanier goes gallivanting down the right-hand side. and He's not there to, to get back and, uh, and to mark for Montero, who ultimately finishes the chance to make it four. And one individual who, who I think can be um, exceptionally frustrated with the result, because I thought he had a good game himself, setting a penalty was Dane St. Clair. Um, do we think, Kendra, here's the million-dollar question already in the podcast, is he the number one now? Oh, yeah, I think so, hands down. I mean, I think that um, – I do think that Adrian Heath went into 2021 as an open competition. I mean, I have no knowledge of what Adrian Heath felt going in, but just you have a, a perennial, you know, starter in Tyler Miller who has been there, done that on so many levels. Dane St. Clair, who – was built up quite a bit because he stepped in right away. But what did he ultimately have? 12 games, 12 starts, not counting playoffs or, you know, something along those lines. So I think that Tyler Miller's coming off double hip impingement surgery. That's a whole nother animal. And you just didn't know what you were going to get from him returning. I do think it was a 50-50 open competition. But I think Dane St. Clair showed so much promise, so much swagger, and so much ability in 2020 that going with the youngster and feeling like this could be the goalkeeper of the future for your club, I think Dane St. Clair has solidified that position. And I don't think that those goals were his fault. I mean, and, and it was funny. My husband and I were talking about this after the game too when I got home is, you know, were there times maybe here, could he have come out? Was he out of position? Did it, you know, where Michael Boxall is running back towards his own goal and that should he come off his line a little bit sooner? Or should he have, force the issue a little bit more if you're just making yourself big and you have a presence that you're just forcing that one touch, you know, to be misplayed um, by Seattle. It's so hard to say when it's in, in, you know, coming so fast at you and it's essentially a breakaway, but the penalty save he had and his authoritative nature in this organization of that back line. I think that, um, I think this is Dane St. Clair's job to lose. And I would expect him to be in that starting position going forward, unless an injury or some, you know, some other thing where you know, he just gets blown out at some point and he's making some real mental errors. Okay, uh, before we go to break, let's let's talk a little bit about this game coming up uh, against RSL. Do we expect wholesale changes? Do we expect there to be a couple here and there for Minnesota? Um, I would expect a couple here and there. I don't know what the health of the players is. You you mentioned Nico Hansen. We mentioned Baka Debasi, right. um, who we got so used to seeing at left center back last year and has not really played at all in preseason. I can't imagine he would be available because he can't, he just won't be game fit. You know, even if he's, even if he was out there training and full with the club, I don't think he would be fit and ready to play. Um, 
I think so much of it is going to depend on the health of the players. Does Juan Aguadelo get the start as a true number nine up top if he's healthy and fit and ready to go? Because I don't think Abila is going to be in that spot yet. I don't think he's ready to be the starting number nine from a game fitness standpoint. Um, you know, uh, that would be really my only thing is if they change out, if, if maybe Brent Coleman doesn't get the start, if they make a change there, they did play a lot of preseason with Yuka Raitala there as a left center back. Um, and he can play there. He's fully capable of it. There's some familiarity with Chase and with Boxel because of preseason work. Those are about the only changes that I could possibly see. Um, and then again, though, it's so much on health and health of the players and who's available in those positions. And um, and if Adrian goes back to that four two three one, the traditional four two three one, who he has sitting inside and up top, may change where we see Reynoso on the field. Yeah, it'll be really interesting. Um, you mentioned Juan Angadello there, Kendra. How does Juan Angadello change things, bearing in mind, you know, the, the unnatural um, nature in, in the way that Robin Lerd plays, plays as, a, as a false nine? Uh, knowing what Ramon Abila does, we've, we've discussed it enough in terms of how he plays the game, but how does Juan Angadello change things for Minnesota? Let, let's bear in mind that, again, we're, we're recording this on, on Wednesday. We don't know what the fitness of the players are, but... Let's just speculate slightly and, and mention Agudelo as the starting centre forwards. How does he change things compared to the other options Minnesota have? Well, I think Robin Lud, you hit it in, you know, that he's a false number nine. He's going to tuck much farther back. He's not going to stretch the back line nearly as much as I think Juan Aguadala will. But Juan also has the ability to play with his back to goal. He has the ability to play with his back to goal, receive the ball. He said the other day in an interview is no problem being a wall in a wall pass. If it's, you know, Emmanuel Reynoso trying to get closer to goal. He can make the runs in behind. He was already feeling a chemistry. I don't think he's a burner, but I think he's faster than Ramon Avila. I think he's going to press a little bit higher and allow you to um, force the issue with the, the back line of Real Salt Lake. And I think that something you can't underestimate with um, a player like Juan Aguadelo is just the, the hunger that he has. Not only does he feel like he has something to prove because of how he – didn't get the time and didn't get re-signed at Inter-Miami. He also was not the first choice sub as a number nine off the bench against Seattle. And you just know that that's got to be rubbing him the wrong way when he has a point to prove he's trying to get back to the men's national team. And I really do feel like he felt like during preseason that him and Emmanuel Reynoso had developed a chemistry, a, a understanding of where he needs to be. As long as he makes the run, Reynoso will find him. He'll find the gap. He knows how to step off the shoulder of the defender to create the space to make himself available. And um, I think that, you know, he, he probably was disappointed that he came up with a little bit of a niggle of an injury um, at the end of preseason and then had been working himself back into fitness. So, um, I think that Robin would prefer to be back on the wing in his true natural position. And I think Juan Agudela would love to be on the field and with a point to prove um, and, and opening at home on Allianz Field in front of those fans about why Minnesota United brought him in and the quality he still has. We'll see Minnesota United up against Real Salt Lake this coming Saturday. The home opener at Allianz Field. We can't wait. Coming up next, we'll talk all Real Salt Lake with their colour analyst and RSL club legend, Brian Dunsett. And a very warm welcome back to our match preview podcast. Callum Williams alongside Kendra D. St. Auburn, as always. 
all about Real Salt Lake and the home opener for Minnesota United this forthcoming weekend. Minnesota United, again, the first time having fans in the stadium. So many people are excited. Of course, they played in front of 7,000 or so against Seattle, but so, so excited to have fans at Allianz Field this coming weekend. The opponent, as we mentioned, is Real Salt Lake. So we thought we'd bring on Mr. RSL himself to give us the lowdown on Freddy Juarez's men. Brian Dunseth, colour analyst for Real Salt Lake. Danny, how are you? I'm great, great. How are both of you? Very good, uh, as I insinuated there several times. All very excited to have fans back in the stadium <laughs> at Allianz Field. Uh, so before we talk about the game and thoroughly undress Real Salt Lake on the field, there's one or two things happening off the field at the moment. What can you tell us, Brian? Yeah, so for everyone that hasn't been paying attention to what's happening out here in Salt Lake on the backside of a really turbulent 2020 season for everybody, uh, Deloitte Hansen, which I guess we're calling still the current owner, but the club is out of his hands. Um, he was trying to sell the club since stepping away in late August, early September. Um, and now we're kind of awaiting what is a potential sale, much like the situation in Orlando with Orlando City and in Houston with the Houston Dynamo. I think there are plenty interested parties, a couple interested parties, and we'll see how this all transpires. But in the short term, the league is managing whatever potential sale looks like after the six-month uh, memoranda, I guess, was uh, expired for Deloitte to try to sell the club on his own. And I think everyone, quite honestly, from the players on the field to the coaches in the locker room to everybody inside the organization is in a situation where they're auditioning for the future of their jobs. Um, because we, as we all know, when new ownership comes in, they're most certainly going to come in with their own people. So very turbulent off season. And Oh, by the way, um, just a guy named Nate Monoha and Kyle Beckerman left the club as well. So uh, power vacuum top to bottom with regards to Real Salt Lake heading into the 2021 season. Donnie, you make it sound like Kyle Beckerman is a household name with Real Salt Lake or something like he's going to be, <laughs> he's going to be missed around there. You know, you talk about people auditioning for their jobs. Is it more difficult to audition for their jobs going forward when you are a little bit handcuffed as what you can do with the roster and how the team can or cannot spend money? What is that situation for the club? Yeah, as we all know, this is a, a reality that we're in kind of a nuclear arms race in terms of spending in Major League Soccer with, I don't call it a salary cap. I call it a salary budget because there is no cap. They're all just a bunch of different mechanisms. So for Real Salt Lake, to be clear, anything above the target allocation money threshold, the $1.6 million for a player to fall in line for the target allocation money threshold, anybody above that, they're not going to be able to sign. MLS is not going to allow the club to spend discretionary money for designated players at this point without having a new owner coming in. So RSL still has two target allocation money players or places available. As we all know, with the transfer window, the, uh, I guess, first transfer window being opened until May 31st, there's a, still a significant opportunity for them to play or bring players in. They've announced the signing of Bobby Wood, who I personally think is a fantastic signing and off the radar because people, you know, don't really understand the situation that he found himself in at Hamburg over the last three seasons. Um, and now we wait to see 
what kind of personality is going to be on the field. But, you know, if you're a Minnesota fan, that target allocation money type of player is going to be Albert Rusnak, Samir Krylock, Everton Louise. Those are going to be kind of the players that you would look at and say, oh, those are those are comparable comps in terms of players that RSL will be able to sign. So a few things to undress here, Danny. Number one, do we expect those two targeted allocation money signings to be made over the course of, of the next month or so? And you mentioned the situation with Bobby Wood that he found himself uh, in Europe earlier on. What, what do you mean by that? So Bobby, uh, a Hawaiian by birth in California until he was a, a young teenager, went over to 1860 Munich, grew up in that system in Germany. And you think about, you know, as a young 13, 14-year-old going over to a completely different lifestyle, culture, language, the difficulties that that had. He actually played at Union Berlin in the Bundesliga 2 with Demir Krylock and scored, I think it was 14 or 15 goals that season with Demir playing directly underneath him. Uh, after one year at Union Berlin, he earned a huge money move to Hamburg, uh, basically was somewhere in the neighborhood of $4 million net per year was he was bringing in. And unfortunately for Bobby in that first year with the club, Hamburg was relegated uh, and historically in a historic fashion, Um, whether it was the board members, whether it was the board putting pressure on the manager, uh, whether it was just down to Bobby's form, there was a lot of push to get Bobby out of the club. Bobby has was on a lot of money on a legally valid contract and the options just weren't right for him and his family. So, to come in now, I think he scored a couple goals in the last month and a half for Hamburg. He's been released from his contract. There was talk that, okay, he won't be here until you know, mid-June, but he is free to join as soon as his wife gives birth in Denmark, and uh, he'll immediately make his way over to Salt Lake City. And then, Danny, in terms of those other roster spots being filled, the TAM roster spots, do we expect that to happen? I, I think if the right player shows up, um, I think what this, you know, initial opening window until May 31st does is it as it, as we all kind of know, um, all of the soccer nerds that it now goes past the end of the regular season for Premier League Championship, you know, Eredivisie, uh, uh, you know, all in Europe. So I think it what we're seeing is that you can maybe slow down and not make mistakes the way we see a lot of MLS teams make mistakes in this kind of uh, financial category because they need to get the job done by, you know, the end of January. Um, And, oh, by the way, a lot of players will be out of contract and can sign as free players instead of just waiting for the summer window. So I would assume that if the player is available, they will strike. Uh, If not, I think you could potentially see if an owner comes in up to four impact signings for Real Salt Lake before the end of the season. Danny, let me ask you this. I saw something in the British media a few days ago with Nader Manuaha, and he suggested his, his time at Real Salt Lake was, was tainted with frustration, no doubt. But he, he perhaps insinuated that it wasn't life or death at Real Salt Lake. Um, what do we make of that? Is that something that an RSL fan needs to be concerned with? No, I, I think that's probably a bigger – and listen, having gotten to know Natum, um, having, to, having seen him behind the scenes when everyone was kind of laid off – not laid off, but, but put on uh, – oh, what's the word am I going for right now? Put on a, a little bit of a break, furlough. There you go. Took me long enough. That uh, he was financially subsidizing 
some of these workers at Real Salt Lake, people inside the club, financially with his own money. Natum is one of the most incredible human beings I've ever been around, and I have the utmost respect. And I was fortunate enough to do some stuff off the field uh, with kind of the local school district here in Utah. Um, but to hear him say that, I think there's probably a tinge of promotion and relegation conversation in there about the fact that, you know, you, you play for your jobs when teams are struggling. Um, and then also, I think that, you know, what, what, we've, what we've realized that has transpired over this last year is that there was some serious, serious things happening behind the scenes that uh, with regards to, you know, previous ownership that were seeping into the locker room. And once it seeps into the locker room, uh, the inability to have leadership from above and the inability to make hard decisions when hard decisions need to be made. I would assume all of that comes maybe in some of those quotes from Natum. Donnie, kind of moving on to 2021 and on the field, but as you look back at um, 2020, what is the best, biggest addition for this club going into the season, clearly finishing 11th in 2020, missing out of the playoffs, you know, listening to Freddie Juarez, not happy with how the team finished and, you know, the sky's the limit going forward. What's the biggest, best addition to this team? Oh, um, Kendra, I would say it's actually twofold, and I'm not trying to, not trying to wiggle around this. I think Freddie replaced his entire staff. Let me, let me repeat that. Freddie replaced his entire staff this offseason. So he brings in Pablo Mastroeni, uh, who was obviously, you know, the MLS legend, played in a World Cup, head coach at Colorado. Last year was down with Tab and Omid in Houston. So he's come in. They brought Matty Taylor, who was at Kansas City um, and at Chivas USA before, you know, doing really well in the Bundesliga too. He came up from UCLA. That's the first time since uh, Jason Christ that they've actually had a guy who can focus on the offensive third and in particular finishing. And then they brought in Nacho, Ignacio, the goalkeeper coach, who was with Freddie down at the academy and specifically brought in to work with David Ochoa, who, as we saw during Olympic qualifying, has an incredibly high ceiling, but still is young and sometimes naive with some mistakes left in him. So I'd say the staff, um, but to your point about where they finished in the conference, they just didn't score goals. Whether it was Sam Johnson throwing COVID house parties uh, with you know people getting shot outside and him being dismissed from the team, or Douglas Martinez and Giuseppe Rossi not scoring goals, uh, they went out, they brought in Rubio, Rubio Rubin, who has been fantastic. Uh, I think he's got seven U.S. men's national team appearances while he was over in Europe, uh, addressed Bobby Wood, and then brought in a winger and Anderson Julio, a young Ecuadorian, who I think is going to seamlessly transition into MLS. And physically, I think you guys will be impressed with what you see. So, yeah, I would say addressing the offensive third, um, but maybe more importantly is the support staff to Freddie Juarez and how they, you know, I brought up Natum and I brought up Kyle, how they manage kind of that leadership vacuum that is, uh, is now gone inside that locker room. I mean, just going back to David Ochoa, he's a name we've heard of over the last couple of years as being the next number one at Real Salt Lake. People perhaps comparing him to um, Nick Romando and, and, and saying he will be the next Romando in terms of him staying at the club long term and what have you. 20 years of age, is he ready to be the number one? Um, all right, Cal, I'm, I'm going to say I think he's got the ability to be the next number one for the U.S. men's national team. And uh, without looking at you guys in the face, I would imagine you're looking at each other saying, yeah, right, no chance. 
uh, eyes wide open comment. Um, I think this kid, the, the sky's the limit. He's already started at the under 20 World Cup. He's eligible for the next under 20 World Cup. He just started as the number one at Olympic qualifying. He's eligible for the next Olympics. He's got a USL championship underneath his belt with Real Monarchs. And had he not injured his thumb and, and picked up a thigh injury, I think he would have had probably 10 to 15 starts last year for Real Salt Lake and maybe even an international appearance for the U.S. men's national team because he was called into that January camp uh, before he had to depart with a quad injury. Tata Martino has reached out. You know, the, the Mexican Federation has reached out because he is a dual citizen and he would be eligible to play for Mexico. I do think the sky's the limit. He's about 6'2", uh, incredible shot stopper. Yeah. If he gets the start, and I assume he gets the start uh, in Minnesota, uh, Minnesota fans will hate him because he's got all the Dennis Rodman type, the Bill Lane beer kind of like blowing kisses at fans and, you know, the, the, the Tom Cruise chop flybys. He, he, it is pomp. It's circumstance and the game within the game. He is a little bit, he has so much of a showboat in him. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think we'll find out exactly who he is this year. Exactly. Obviously but he is an incredibly talented young goalkeeper. And even with the mistakes that he made down in Guadalajara, um, I think they will actually benefit him going forward, even though it was a uh, detriment to the U.S. Soccer Federation. Well, it's crazy, Donnie, because we talk about him being so young, and you talk about the mistakes that he made in Olympic qualifying, and that's right now what's fresh in everybody's mind, not the, the insane performances he had against Costa Rica and some of the other matches in Olympic qualifying. That's what's listed on Wikipedia right now is that he made a mistake, yeah. you know, that cost the U.S. the game. So hopefully as a 20-year-old, where does he sit mentally from recovering from mistakes like that? You talk about his swagger and his arrogance and the showboating, but from that kind of stuff, how did he come back into preseason after that? <laughs> uh, he came back really strong. And you laid it out perfectly. And I think it's a testament to this kid's mentality. And whether he's arrogant or naive, I'm not really sure. <laughs> but, but the kid, you know, listen, it's not lost on him, the mistake that was made. And by the way, uh, the kid that, that stripped him of the ball for Honduras was actually his teammate at Real Monarchs, which kind of like doubles the blow for everything. Um, again, it's not, it's not lost on him, the mistake. And you could see him at the final whistle, how devastated he was. Is he going to look back on it and always know that, yes, he did play a role? Was it his fault 100%? I don't think so. I still think at the end of the day, even if we're calling that a C roster, that team was so much better than what Honduras had. Um, and that's what makes it even more disappointing. But I think in terms of mentally, you know, his, his mental stability and his ability to overcome this you know, big, big mistake. Um, I think it's going to make him a better player and he's come in and I, I don't know if you guys watched his performance against the LA galaxy in Tucson, but the kid made four or five, uh, incredible, incredible saves. And I think it's a testament to kind of a, a continued evolution of who he is as a young man and as a goalkeeper. Focus on the other end of the field, Danny. I think for such a long time, it was a question mark in terms of, who would play centre-forward for Real Salt Lake? For a long time, Demir Krylak was a man operating in that, that role. But now it seems as though with Bobby Wood on the way, um, Rubio Rubin, we would assume, would lead the line. 
has that given Felipe Juarez a, a few new ideas? Do we expect RSL tactically to operate a little differently compared to what they did last year? Yeah, I think I think Demir was played. It's a testament to who Demir is as a person and as a player because he's so adaptable and he can play four or five different positions and you're not losing a beat. You don't see a drop off. I think it was more towards to give you guys a little bit of a background. RSL missed on Yuramov's history and coming back from Russia. Uh, they had to pay two years of his contract. They missed on a guy named Alfredo Ortuño. They had to pay 18 months on his contract. And for a long time under previous ownership, this team was shopping at Super Walmart while other teams were shop- shopping at Neiman Marcus. So the risk versus reward, you know, they hit on Jefferson Saberino and Albert Rusnak, Demir Krylock, Everton Louise. But, you know, they, they've missed on a pure number nine. So... I would assume that Rubio Rubin, Douglas Martinez, and Bobby Wood are going to all fight for that that point nine spot. Albert would play on the left like he does for Slovakia. Demir, if you watch all the preseason games, he's played as the number 10, a high-pressing number 10. And then Anderson Julio starts wide right in kind of this hybrid of a 4-2-3-1. And then when you look at that lineup and you – we talked about the absence of Kyle Beckerman, who probably didn't play as many you know, games last season as he maybe would have liked as he was close to retirement. But who sits in the middle of that field then? I mean, we can talk and talk about the quality of Everton Louise. I remember when you guys came to Allianz last year, it was insane. He was in on every tackle. He was buzzing around the field. It's like the guy doesn't age. So who is kind of the stalwart in the middle of the pitch for this club as long, along with those wingers and the number nine that gets thrown out there? Yeah, so Everton Luis is absolutely going to be that guy that every fan is going to hate. Uh, I love Ozzy Alonso, but he's going to be hated like Ozzy Alonso. I love Diego Chata. He's going to be hated like Diego Chata. I love Kyle Beckerman. He's going to be hated like Kyle Beckerman. Uh, you know, like same with Roger Espinosa. He's one of those personalities where he's so easy to hate, um, but you really enjoy him if he plays for you. Uh, last year, there was in particular one player who kind of came through in a time that no one was really expecting. Kid named Paulo Ruiz. Paulo Ruiz, he came to the club years ago, um, played him as a, a hybrid of a 10, played him as a holding player, played him as a left back. This kid's left foot is cut from a diamond. I mean, he is unbelievable, the power he generates. Um, and he can ping a 60-yard diagonal on a dime. He, last year, was the revelation of the season for Real Salt Lake. He had spent some time over in Ping Zhao in that kind of like fan-owned Austrian team that had got up and running a couple of years ago. Uh, him and actually Brody were over there, and it benefited them both tremendously. And because of the pandemic, going down to Orlando, Paulo Ruiz got an opportunity that he probably would have never gotten had that pandemic not happened because of the short turnaround uh, and, and training sessions in between the games. So... Uh, Paulo, he, after playing, I think, what did he start? Like 18 of the 19 games, he was rewarded with a brand new contract. And yeah, he and Everton Luis will be sat side by side uh, if we're talking about the first choice starting 11. Danny, let me now ask you about the opponents, Minnesota United. As many as 10 new additions for Adrian Heath's men. Um, already they looked good. Already they had a solid foundation. Now they've only gotten better. Who stands out to you in terms of the individuals that they've brought in? Um, I'm waiting to see Avila and how this all plays out. I know that anytime you bring in a new player, the adaption period is important. 
Um, but at the same time, fitness is that much more important because we always talk about the one thing that people are trying to get used to in MLS is not just the travel, but the style of play and, and kind of the physicality of play. When I was watching the Seattle game, um, I, I was honestly, quite honestly, shocked at how poor the team played in the second half because I expected Minnesota to be so much better. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for Adrian Heath and company that you chalk that up to, you know, first game jitters against an opponent that maybe in Seattle, everyone was downplaying how good they could be without some important pieces. Um, that's why, you know, going back to Allianz Field, as you said, fans inside the stadium, we're going to get a clearer identity of who this team is. Uh, should they be in consideration for the top spots in the Western Conference? Or should there be kind of this, the, the, the narrative of uh, Adrian Heath's team doesn't get the amount of respect that they deserve, but this time it's based on performance. When you look at Minnesota's roster, um, what, what is, who's the steady Eddie to you? Cause you know, a lot of players get attention. We'd always talk about the attacking pieces, but is there someone on this roster that you just know, if you're going to do your pregame show, you're going to hit on this player because it's a player that you know is going to perform at the highest level for the loons. Yeah. I, I would say the most dangerous player and that's Favela Reynoso for me. Um, I think his debut was against Real Salt Lake last year and I thought he was absolutely spectacular. I think he was one of those special players that you see and you know when he's on the ball, he's capable of doing things that very few players in the rest of the league are capable of doing. And to see him, um, you know, see him in the amount of games that I saw, I just thought he was special. It's a hardworking team. Um, and I think when you sprinkle in some special players, that's what's going to put them over the top. But I think for me, it's naive not to recognize the loss of Kevin Molino. Um, not that Mason Toy or Kai Kamara matter going forward but that's still pace athleticism and goals that you'll have to figure out how to overcome um and then you know the 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 scariest part was on the defensive side of the ball the two center backs um i thought when you're looking at do you need to upgrade or from the starting 11 uh there was some major concerns for me from what i saw in that second half up in seattle Okay, Danny, final question for you before we let you go. I know you've got a mountain to climb back down. Um, it may even be a fair on question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, a good season for Real Salt Lake. What does that look like? A uh, good season is, uh, and I'm realistic on this one, um, I would say a good season is them fighting for one of the final playoff spots in the Western Conference. I know there's a lot of uh, MLS experts out there that have them coming in way, 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 way near the bottom of the Western Conference. So I understand why. Um, but I think because there's no expectations, I think this team could surprise some people. And I've been using the analogy for a while. that. Well, um, unsurprisingly, with Brian Dunseth at the top of a mountain, we uh, appear to have uh, have lost him. So we'll, we'll get him back here shortly, I'm assuming, Kendra. Um, and I was going to ask you, in, in terms of individuals to stand out from an RSL point of view, who, who stands out for you? 
Well, honestly, I think, uh, you know, thinking back to last season in particular and really every year that Minnesota United has played RSL, it's Albert Rushnak for me. I mean, he was a game changer last year. Demir Krylock is an is a known commodity as well for RSL and his ability to strike the ball from distance and really kind of he's not going to create something maybe necessarily going at goal for himself. But I think from distance, he can just wind up and strike it um, and with with some pace and, and on frame. But I think Albert Rushnak. When he plays on the wing and he can cut inside and can keep defenses on their toes and off balance, he just creates so many problems as he draws the defenders. He can find somebody else to open it up. So um, those are the two key pieces for me. I'm excited to see Rubio Rubin and what he brings to the table. David Ochoa, you know, quite possibly in a starting role. Um, He's been talked about quite a bit. And, um, you know, I think there was a lot of fanfare about Douglas Martinez last season um, down at when the team went down to Orlando and he was kind of lighting things on fire and he was there's a lot of praise for him. And then maybe he fizzled off um, as the season wore on a little bit. So we'll see how he comes back in 2021. OK, well, um, we'll leave it there, shall we? I think we've lost Brian Dunsteth. Uh, to the wilderness of Utah, which is okay, uh, because we'll chat to him next time, I'm sure. Uh, So all eyes on Allianz Field then this Saturday with fans back in the stands and Minnesota United coming home. Our thanks to Brian Dunseth, Kindred East St. Alban, our producer Tyson Hill, as always. And a very, very big thank you to you uh, for listening at home as well. We'll see you Saturday when Minnesota United take on Real Salt Lake.